Oh God of all grace, we need your grace now as we come to this part of Peter's letter that uh, talks about the church's shepherds and the church's sheep. And um, this one uh, I approach with fear and trembling because I know that uh, these topics uh, may trigger hard things in, in some people's hearts. I know it has in mine, even as I've prepared this week. And Father, it's also a scary thing for um, me as an under-shepherd of this church to, to preach about shepherding. Um, the words that uh, Jennifer read from Ezekiel 34 are chilling, chilling that you uh, hold your shepherds to high standards for feeding your people. And so I tremble at this word that you have given me to preach this morning. Would you help us all? Um, help us all cultivate in us the very humility that Peter calls for uh, in, the, in these verses. Only your spirit can do that. And we, do, we need you to do that even now as we humbly listen to what you have to say to us. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. Well, I have a confession to make uh, to you. Uh, I have a love-hate relationship with the church. Um, and before you get too nervous, uh, I, I love the church. When I was 10 years old, uh, when I first met Jesus, I also sensed at that time God was calling me to be a pastor. I couldn't explain it. No one, was in, no one in my family was uh, going to church until about that time. There were no pastors in my family. Uh, I didn't know what that meant. I just knew that's what God was calling me to do. So I've spent all, the, all my life either preparing to become a pastor or practicing being one. I feel like you know, you physicians out there who are called practicing physicians, we're still learning and practicing uh, these things. And um, I've been some kind of pastor in five churches in five, three states, and I even tried to plant a church once. And, and so I love the church. It, it, it's, I can't separate my life from the church. And when I say I have a love-hate relationship with the church, the hate part is not so much hating the church as, as hating the brokenness in it. Um, I have been a victim of the church's brokenness, and I have been an agent of the church's brokenness. Um, I have been sinned against by pastors and elders and deacons and ministry leaders and people in the pew. But I have also sinned against pastors and elders and deacons and ministry leaders and people in the pew. I've been a victim of spiritual abuse by church leaders, and I have been an agent of spiritual abuse as a church leader. I have had many moments when I've been extremely frustrated both with church leaders and church members. 
and my idealistic zeal for what the church ought to be has oftentimes soured into a cynicism about why the church not, is not the way it is supposed to be. Um, and, <laughs> even more than that, I've had great, great cynicism about why I, as a church leader, am not what I'm supposed to be. Um, a friend of mine, just this past week, uh, one of my best buddies, uh, has just accepted a very similar position to the one that I have here. He's going to be, for the first time, a lead pastor in a small church. And I said, how are you feeling? Are you excited? He said, I'm terrified. And I get it. Um, I have seen church people hurt other church people. Uh, I knew of a man in a church that I served at one time who told the pastor that he would stop giving to the church unless they stopped forcing that contemporary worship music down his throat. Um, there was a time when I had to confront an elder um, because he verbally abused my volunteer children's ministry leader in front of the children in her Sunday school classes, class to the point of tears. Not in this church. But I had to tell that elder, don't you ever speak to a volunteer that way again. He was repentant. Um, I remember times when my wife, Christina, said she has never had more cruel things said to her than when she was a volunteer women's ministry leader at a church. And some of the women in that ministry just said horrible things to her. And I know that many of you have been wounded by church people. But it's not just other church people who wound us. Church leaders wound us. Because sometimes church leaders like to demand their way. I've watched as powerful pastors fire other pastors or somehow manipulate them out the door. I know of three churches right now, none, none around here, um, where there's a ruling elder or an elder in that church um, that is on a power trip and is trying to run the church and run off the pastor. Um, and one of the worst experiences of my adult life, not just my adult church life, was when I once got caught up and caught between two pastors who couldn't get along. That two-year nightmare had me on antidepressants, in counseling, and this close to leaving the ministry altogether. So why, Pastor Jimmy, are you depressing us with all these stories about how hard church is. I'm going to leave before you're done. Um, no, I'm telling you these things because I, I know some of your stories. And we want to be a church where people who have been hurt by the church can come. And we don't want to be a church that hurts people. But the reality is, <laughs> we're a bunch of sinners too. Um, 
when I went through that very difficult time, that two-year time, when I came this close to leaving the ministry, I talked to my godly and wise Aunt Gwen, and I said, you know, I'm just disillusioned with the church. It's, it's a cumulative effect, and that was kind of the last straw. She said, good. I'm glad you're finally disillusioned. She said, that's what the word means. It means that you no longer have an illusion about the church. You see it for what it is. You see it for all the hard parts. You see it for the sin that's there. So as we come to this passage this morning that talks about church leaders and church members, um, I want to ask you, have you been disillusioned yet? by the church, or your church leaders, or church people. I know some of you have. Um, Have you ever wanted to give up on church? I have. One time when I was going on and on, like I am now, about how messed up churches are, someone said to me, "Uh, did you realize, Jimmy, that if if it weren't for messed up churches, we would have no New Testament letters. Think about that. Most, if not all, of the letters from the apostles were written to encourage and instruct churches that were somewhere on the spectrum of messy. That, that's why they were written, to help messed up, messy churches. And the, the letters of the New Testament are like, Episodes from a reality TV show we might call church people behaving badly. Um, I mean, the apostles warned their churches to watch out for church leaders who were wolves in sheep's clothing. That's where that came from. Who were leading their flocks into error. Paul grieved over church leaders who had been friends of his who abandoned the gospel mission altogether and betrayed him. He grieved over church leaders who took advantage of women, pastors who were proud and argumentative, argumentative, the whole gamut. Um, And it's not that that's all new, as we read in Ezekiel 34. Shepherds, even in Israel, not shepherds with actual sheep, but the leaders of God's people were feeding themselves instead of feeding the sheep. They were praying on the sheep rather than praying with and for the sheep. And so Peter is also aware that there's great potential for church leaders and church members to behave badly. And so he closes his letter with this exhortation. So I exhort the elders among you, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And then he goes on to say, likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. And he doesn't necessarily mean they're uh, just young people. He's basically using that phrase as a way to say, all all of you non-elders, be subject to your elders. So he, he recognizes that there's There's troubles with church leaders and there's troubles with church members. They have trouble subjecting themselves to one another in love. 
Let's look at that a little closer. Look, listen to what he says. What he asks elders to do, uh, not do and to do, says something about what he knows church leaders struggle with. He says, <coughs> excuse me, um, I sound worse than I feel. I'm fine. It's just the after effects. Um, he says that elders should uh, shepherd the flock not under compulsion, but willingly. See, because church leaders struggle with apathy, where it, it ends up they're so, they've lost their heart for people. Um, and so their service just becomes out of compulsion, out of duty, and not a willing delight. They've lost their heart for people. Um, they're not a shepherd of sheep. They're more like a board member just grinding it out. Church leaders struggle with apathy. Then he goes on and says, not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Church leaders struggle with lust. Oh, wait a minute. He says, not for shameful gain, but eagerly. What does that have to do with lust? Well, it's not necessarily sexual lust. It includes that. But this this shameful gain, this desire, this this overabundant desire to have something in it, may be sexual, and that certainly has happened in the church, but more commonly, it's just a lust for glory, um, a lust for uh, power, a, a lust to feel needed, a lust to look good and look righteous, to be a religious person, an upstanding whatever. Um, church leaders struggle with an out-of-bounds or an out-of-balance desire to have something that they think the sheep We'll give them. It's a shameful gain. And then thirdly, he says, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. Uh, that domineering, church leaders struggle with anger. You know, when they think in their heads, these sheep need to get their acts together. I mean, what? how are we going to be a church, a light, salt and light in this community if these people don't start living right? None of our elders would ever think that. These sheep won't listen. They're distracted. They don't come to worship. They don't give enough. They don't come to Sunday school. They don't this, that, and the other. They just get angry. And then they end up trying to motivate people with fear and intimidation. That's domineering. Because church leaders struggle with anger. But the good news is, church leaders aren't the only ones, because Peter goes on and says, likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. In other words, that little word likewise, basically he's saying, you church folks, you church folks also struggle with these things. Church members struggle with apathy. We church folks lose our heart for God. We, we stop praying for our leaders. We... Uh, we lose a tender concern for other folks in the church. We get apathetic. Church members struggle with lust, maybe sexual, definitely that. But more commonly, church people want glory. They want to feel needed. They want to feel noticed. Um, they want something out of their church leaders or other members of the church they're just not getting. So there's this craving for something for either my church leaders or my church friends 
to give me that I'm not getting. And then church members also struggle with anger. Um, Like I'm struggling with anger over this page that won't turn. Church members struggle with anger. You know, those, those elders and deacons and staff and volunteer workers, they need to get their act together. Um, they don't listen. They're so distracted. It's really easy for those of us who come to church and participate in church to slide into consumerism. And then we start acting at church the way we act at a restaurant. When we don't get good service, we complain to the management. We domineer. We try to get our way. So all that to say, both of us, church leaders and church members, we're a mess. We're a mess. We have these desires in us that when they don't get met, like James says in chapter 4 of James, you You want something, but you don't get it, so you kill and you covet, you lust. You get angry and you get lustful because there's something you want out of each other that you're not getting. That's what we do. So all of this bad news about church life can make you wonder, so is the local church really God's plan to reach the world with the good news that through Jesus he's glad to renew all things? Is this really a good idea, Lord? Apparently Peter thought so. Um, This whole letter that we've been studying was written to the church, calling the church to be the family of God, the temple of God, the priests of God. Um, And now, here in chapter 5, He's addressing the church, both its leaders and its people. Um, And this is what I think Peter's saying. He says, listen, I'm a fellow elder in the church. I'm heavily invested in this. Why? Because I'm a witness of Christ's suffering. Christ's suffering. I'm a witness of what Jesus did to make the church his. I watched him bleed to buy these people. I watched the good shepherd lay down his life for his sheep. I'm a witness of his sufferings. And Peter goes on and says, but I'm also a participant or a a partner, a partaker of the glory that will one day be fully revealed. In other words, I'm not only a witness of what Jesus did to make the church his, I'm also a witness of what Jesus is doing to make the church like him. Peter says, listen, I was on that mountain when Jesus, with James and John when Jesus took away the veil and he showed us his glory. He said, I, I saw Jesus after his resurrection. I saw him in his glorified resurrection body. He touched me with it. I have seen what we are going to be. I have seen what Jesus did to make us his, and I have seen what we're going to look like when he's done making us like him. So yes, the church matters, Peter says. Yes, and so therefore, please, church leaders, church members, 
Clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. That's his solution to the problem of a messy church. That's his solution to the problem of selfish church leaders and selfish church members. Clothe yourselves with humility, all of you, toward one another. For God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Let me illustrate. What we tend to do as church leaders and church members is that we tend to clothe the other person instead of ourselves. We tend to clothe the other person with the enemy shirt. Okay? So that church leader or that church member is not doing what I need them to do so that I can be happy. They're getting in my way. (laughs) They're the enemy. They're the problem. So we tend to clothe them. But what Peter is saying, no, no, no. Quit clothing each other with those enemy labels. And like a servant who in those days wore an apron, clothe yourself with humility toward one another. Stop putting the enemy shirt on your brothers and sisters. Stop putting the enemy shirt on your church leaders. Instead, put the humility apron on yourself. So, if my volunteers would come quickly. So you got two sisters in the church. And, you know, they're sisters. <coughs> Their father is so happy about this right now. <coughs> You've got these sisters in the church, and Tennyson here, and that's Autumn. So Tennyson is looking at Autumn and saying, Autumn, you're just not, you're just not doing what I need you to do. You're not giving me what my heart needs, so I'm going to put the enemy shirt on you. Ooh, so now, now that Autumn is wearing the enemy shirt that Tennyson has put on her, Tennyson just sees red. I mean, she's just, you're the enemy, you're the problem. If you would get your act together, you know, or she's going to be apathetic toward her and say, well, forget it, if you're going to be that way, I'm just not going to worry about you. Or she's going to be lustful in the sense of, Give me more. I need more for my heart. You're just not giving me enough attention or love or respect or kindness or whatever it is. Or, and then that'll turn into anger. And she just yells and screams at her until she either goes away and does what she wants. Does that work well? <laughs> no. And then Autumn gets an enemy shirt and puts it back on Tennyson, and it's just a mess. But what would happen, what would happen if instead of putting the enemy shirt on Autumn, Tennyson put on, put on the, there you go, the apron of humility, which this is what, Pe- the word that Peter uses when he says clothe yourselves is a word that comes from slaves who put on an apron to serve. This is what Peter is asking you to do. So what would happen to this relationship if she took, off that, took that enemy shirt off of Autumn and instead put humility on herself 
and washed her feet, served her kind. Can you see? Now, would that change things in your house? <laughs> Autumn, and Autumn says, is she ought to do that. <laughs> now, so, but the problem is, you both need to be putting on the humility apron. Anyway, thank you so much. Thank you. Good job. Nathan, you owe me some money for that, brother. All right. Um, but see, that's what, that's what Peter's saying is. Clothe yourselves with humility, all of you, and watch what happens. Watch what happens. Stop putting the enemy shirt on each other and put the humility apron on yourself. And the reason, one other reason why you should do that is not just because it'll make life in the church better. It's because God opposes the proud. But he gives grace to the humble. Do we want to be a church that God opposes? It won't be because of our worship music style. It won't be because Jimmy doesn't wear a coat and tie when he preaches. It won't be because we meet in an old school building. God will oppose us if we're proud. God will oppose us if we keep putting the enemy shirt on one another. He will oppose us. Because see, grace runs downhill. You know, all the water that lands on Signal Mountain when it rains like it has, it goes to the lowest place. It runs down the mountain into the valley or into your basement. Um, it goes to the lowest place. When I was growing up, my next-door neighbor, uh, this kid, he was a few years younger than me, his name was Ronnie, and we used to laugh at him because whenever it would pour down rain, Ronnie, he was a little, I don't know what he was, but Ronnie would go out and lie down in the gutter on his stomach and just lie down in the flow of the water that was rushing to the drain. That was crazy Ronnie. Listen, if you and I start going to the low place where grace flows, it's going to look stupid and they're going to call you foolish. Why are you going to let that person treat you that why don't you fight back why don't you demand you know all the drill grace goes to the lowest place and if you want grace you got to go to the lowest place you got to put on the apron of humility so if humility is the answer to the problem of church leaders and church people I have another problem I'm not a humble person. And I bet you have the same struggle that I do. I just, I'm just not going to go there. I've got a whole closet full of enemy shirts to put on people. And I can't find a humility apron anywhere in my house because I'm not a humble person. And Peter says, I know. And that's why he goes on and says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. How are you going to become 
humble like Jesus because you've humbled yourself under his mighty hand. The Old Testament describes the mighty hand of God in two ways, as the hand of judgment and as the hand of rescue and mercy. Folks, if we're ever going to cultivate the heart of humble Jesus, then we need to humble ourselves under the hand of humble Jesus and recognize that the hand of Jesus should crush us, but instead has extended itself to mercy with a nail-pierced palm and says, come to me, come to me. If we're ever going to have humble hearts and be able to put on the humble, the humility apron of Jesus, we have to be convinced and to believe and to trust again and again and again that Jesus took the enemy shirt that should have been and was on me. Jesus put it on himself. And the only way he could do that is to tie the humility apron of human flesh around himself, become a servant, offer himself as a sacrifice for all of his enemies by taking their enemy shirt on himself and receiving God's wrath for our enmity. This is why every week we keep coming back to the good news of the gospel that Jesus lived the life we should have lived. He lived the humility apron life that we should have lived. And he died the enemy shirt death that we should have died. And if we trust him and embrace him, as our good shepherd, he will make us humble people too. I know you want to be a humble church, and so do I. That's why we need this table. Because this is the table that reminds us again and again and again that Jesus became the enemy who received the wrath of God so that we, become, we could become sons and daughters of God and join his family. And if the world is going to see a picture of Jesus in all of his humility, they're going to have to see it in us. Father, would you make that happen? Um, Would you help us to hold on to humble Jesus while you transform us to look like humble Jesus in the way we relate to one another? For it's in his name we pray. Amen.